Heavenly Father, how sweet it is and how wonderful it is to sing of your love and just even hear that wonderful offertory with those lyrics which are from your word. And so we thank you for loving us in the truth. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are full of grace and truth. And God, it is by your truth that that we are sanctified. So I pray that we would be sanctified as we get into your word now. Sanctify us, God, in the truth. Your word is truth, and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, speaking of the word of truth, let us turn to Mark chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. Hopefully you do have your Bibles. We can open it up, the scripture together. And we're in Mark chapter 14. Our passage today is verses 12 to 21. And I want to start off uh, right from the start with the, the big idea for today. And uh, you have a, an insert and inside of your, no, you have a bulletin, right? And inside your bulletin is uh, the, the theme for today, which basically is this. Okay, God is in sovereign control over every detail of our life and death. And he calls everyone to believe in Jesus and make choices According to that belief. So God is in sovereign control of every detail of both life and death. And he he calls everyone, every person, to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and to make choices in life according to that belief. And that's what we try to do, right, church? And even as yesterday, um, just a brief brief, uh, illustration of that, I think it was demonstrated by all the preparations that were made for our dear Patrick's memorial service uh, this, this past few weeks. Okay, God was in charge of every single detail of Patrick's homecoming. Okay, first, going home to his earthly home house over there on Viking Avenue, um, and then being there for just a, a night, and with dear Gloria, and with his daughter Stephanie, and the caretakers, and uh, even their dog. And it was such a sweet Rest in peace if there ever was one, right? And we heard some of that yesterday. But he was in charge of all the details, too, of the many, many people, many among us even here, and friends and interactions and conversations and family members with the family members, working with them, and then all of us serving and cooking and arranging and foods and tables and ordering and all that stuff. Hey, God, God bless that. It was all desired to provide this worshipful, joyful celebration of this dear brother who went to go home to be with the Lord. So all that being said, God was in charge certainly over every detail of that. And yet, and yet, we as believers had responsibility to choose the what and the when and the how and all the rest of all of our actions, as all these preparations and decisions were being made, all the conversations, we were responsible to make these choices according to our faith in Christ. Okay, I don't know if that makes sense with that example, but hopefully it does. It will more as we get into the text today. So let's jump right into it. Mark chapter 14. The sermon title today is The Last Supper, The First Lord's Table. And this is actually part one because the passage continues 
um, starting in verse 22. It goes all the way to 31. Okay, so it's kind of like one passage from 12 to 31. Today we're covering verses 12 to 21, part one, and um, with that big idea in mind. Okay, so if you are able to once more, as we honor God's word, please stand with me. Mark 14, verses 12 to 21 is our text for today. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Please be seated. So once again, as I mentioned last week, the parallel passages, uh, as this one in Mark chapter 14, is found in Matthew 26 and Luke 22. And this is Passion Week, right? We're right in the throes of Passion Week. And we explained last week that the word passion in the Latin, it means to suffer. So this is the week of Jesus' suffering. He's going to the cross. And in fact, we're just, uh, we're just a day away at this point. And so Matthew 26, Luke 22, Mark 14, and John 13 is the other area where the Gospels, the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, describe what happens during the course of this time. And so just uh, Faith Bible Church students, John 13 through 17, it's a lot of material, isn't it? But it's all in, in this upper room discourse. That's what it's called, right? And 13, 14, 15, 16, he records some of these events in the evening that before that Jesus goes to the cross, that the others don't. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics don't mention those. Uh, such as washing the disciples' feet, right, in humble service and love to them. Um, he teaches them about the coming of the Holy Spirit, chapter 14 of John. Uh, John chapter 15, the discourse on the true vine and the branches. And then chapter 17, he gives this high priestly prayer, right? Praying for his disciples then and for all future disciples who would believe in him in the future, including us. John 17, what a precious, precious prayer. And so um, verses 12 to 16 of Mark 14 is where we're at as our first point. And you have a blank, I believe, in your, 
in your uh, bulletin there. It's the preparations for the supper. The preparations for the supper. And I want to explain that within these preparations for this supper they're, they're about to have, the Last Supper, um, there's two subpoints. Okay, the, the first subpoint is the purpose. Okay, what is the purpose of these preparations, this Passover? Well, verse 12 says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, that should sound familiar because I just read Exodus 12 for our scripture reading a little earlier, right? Passover lamb was being sacrificed. His disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So, just a quick review again. The first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, those two holidays, Passover and unleavened bread, the feast, they were just so closely related that, were, that those terms were used interchangeably. They, they could have been talking about either one when they mentioned it. But what happened first, technically, was Passover. Mark calls it the first day of unleavened bread, and he specifies what happens on that day. What did we just read? The lamb is being sacrificed. Right? As per the instructions given to Israel from all the way back in Exodus, around 1400 years earlier, before this time, and um, Exodus chapter 12. If you want to turn there with me one more time, Exodus chapter 12. And just very briefly, verses 1 through 11 show us what every family in, in uh, Israel were to do. Verse 3 says they were to choose a lamb which was to be killed on the evening of Passover, right? Verses 3 to 6. And in verse 7, they were instructed to take that blood of the lamb and put some of it upon the doorpost and lintel, which is the top, the headpost, okay, of their home. And in verse 8, specific instructions to roast the lamb over a fire and they were to eat it with unleavened bread. Okay, there you go, right? And bitter herbs. And then verse 11, they were supposed to eat this meal ready to take a journey. Right? Their sandals on, walking sticks in hand, eating in a hurry. They were to gulp it down. And so we see that God's people um, in Exodus 12 there were spared the judgment which came upon the land of Egypt. This was part of the way that God provided their exit out of slavery. Understand, they were in bondage this brutal situation under Pharaoh and Egypt and slavery for 400 years. And this lamb that was to be sacrificed was the last of the ten plagues which fell upon a cruel Pharaoh in Egypt, or the, the answer to that last plague, which we'll get to in a moment. Okay, so we heard from Exodus chapter 12 that the Jews were spared the death of their firstborn. This was God's judgment upon Egypt, right? It was only through the death of a substitute that they, their household could be spared. A lamb was to be killed, its blood sprinkled on the doorposts of their homes. And I want everybody to take note here that death came to every home in Egypt. Death came to every home. It was either the death of the firstborn child of that home, or it was the death of the lamb. And importantly, it couldn't be just any old lamb of the flock, right? It had to be an unblemished male, a year old, according to verse 5. The best one, spotless, in the best condition from among all their sheep or goats. Each household that obeyed those instructions to take and sacrifice this unblemished lamb and sprinkle its blood, they would escape the striking down of their firstborn child. I mean, there was 
as it's described in Exodus, great, great weeping and wailing in Egypt throughout the land, okay? such as there was never before in its history, nor would, would, would there ever be, according to Exodus 12, where those firstborn children were all killed under God's judgment. And this was incurred due to their leader, Pharaoh's sinful and stubborn refusal to let the Hebrew slaves go after the first nine plagues. Right? And Pharaoh's firstborn child died too in that. So what was the meaning of this great event? Getting to all of this. It was that God determined to save his people out of slavery by the death of a substitutionary lamb. That's what the people were instructed. That's what they understood. The Passover was made for them in Exodus 12. This was God's plan, and it pointed to a greater purpose. Okay, the lesson to them and to the disciples, as Jesus is about to teach them, and even to us today, is that redemption requires a payment. Okay? Redemption requires a purchase. And the purchase price was death. And it was blood. Redemption. Rescue. Right? Freedom from, from bondage. Rescue from Egypt. From enslavement. It required blood. It required a sacrifice. It required the taking of life. And once again, for the Hebrews, it was the life of an unblemished male lamb. At Passover, the noted Jewish historian Josephus, uh, who was alive in New Testament times, he reports that in A.D. 66, okay, this is roughly 30 years after Jesus was crucified, over 255,000 lambs were slaughtered in the temple. Okay, one Passover year. Okay, that's, that's a lot of blood, folks. All that death and blood drive home the point that deliverance from God's judgment requires the death of an innocent substitute. Okay, over and over and over, this was the picture that was given and the picture that was practiced by the Jews according to God's commands. In fact, that's what the entire sacrificial system that God instituted for Israel communicated. Right? Deliverance, rescue, salvation was available, but it came at a price. It came at a price. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no, what? Forgiveness of sins. Leviticus 17.11, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is what? Death. Ultimately, it wasn't the sacrifice of a spotless lamb or any animal that could satisfy God's wrath against sin. All of those sacrifices, all that blood over centuries and centuries could not accomplish anything on their own. And why is that? Hebrews 10 verse 4 tells us, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And listen, folks, animal sacrifices cannot atone for human sin and offense against God, right? Instead, all of that pointed ahead to God's ultimate provision. When he would supply the true Passover lamb, the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus. Right? So we see in the New Testament, 
John calling Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Peter says believers were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1.19. We see the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.7 calling Christ our Passover. In those events of, of the Exodus and the Passover, these are types and shadows that anticipate the future coming of the Savior. How precious is 1 John 4.10, dear folks. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And to what degree and in what way did He love us? He sent us His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. A propitiation, the, the appeasement. Jesus was the wrath absorber. He was the sin taker. He was the sin offering. Even though he was sinless, he offered himself for us. Only the perfect, holy, unblemished one can atone for man's sins. So Jesus is that Passover lamb who absorbs our guilt and our punishment. He's the sacrifice that pays our debt against God. God can pass over the sins of all who believe in him. Because he paid the ultimate price, right? Dying in our place. He died on the cross as a substitute for sinners like me and you. And so it's no accident that Christ, as the Passover lamb, was crucified. And he was sacrificed when? At Passover. That's where we are here in Mark chapter 14. So God is in complete control over the timing of all these details. And Jesus is in complete unity of will with his Father. At this last supper, this last night with his disciples in that upper room, Jesus knew what was going to happen. It was his time, his time of suffering, his time of glory. He would be betrayed, handed over to be crucified, nailed to that cross. And he did this out of incomprehensible love for sinners. Listen, John 13, verse 1. I told you that was the other parallel passage part, right? John says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the uttermost, to the outer limits. Jesus loved and loves his disciples. All of them sinners. All 12 of them were were wicked sinners. Prideful, arrogant, evil. And he loved and loves us. Sinners. Literally to death. And the simple question I ask, will you accept his love and believe in him today? That's the most important question that you need to answer in life. Well, back to Mark 14, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? This is the second sub-point under point one, okay, is the plan. The plan for the preparations. The plan. We saw the purpose. The plan for these preparations. Verse 13, the first part of it says, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, 
by the way, Mark doesn't tell us which two disciples, but Luke does. And guess who? It's Peter and John, right? Two out of the three of his Jesus' inner circle, right? Uh, quick discipleship note. Okay? Always be training someone when you're going to serve the Lord or uh, doing things in ministry. Have someone next to you. But someone's got to prepare the meal, right? And that means someone has to come up with a plan to get things going. And of course, Jesus has the best plan. And so what is, what is Jesus' plan? Look at verse 13b through 15. He says, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where's my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. Isn't that a great plan? (laughs) And I think it's very interesting because it seems clear to me that this is a case of divine foreknowledge. Some commentators, many commentators even, who I respect and um, use and, and everything, they say it's likely that Jesus made private arrangements beforehand with the man carrying that water pitcher and the owner of the house. And then he told Peter and John what to do. But I, I don't see that here or in the other parallel passages in, in Matthew and Luke and John. In all of them, Jesus basically says, uh, guys, just go into the city, right, Jerusalem, where there's going to be literally thousands and thousands of people around at the time of Passover. And you see a guy carrying a pitcher of water. Usually that was only done by women in those days. But when you see him, follow him into whatever house he enters. And then ask the owner of that house. And yes, he's going to be home right at that time, right at that moment. The teacher says, yes, he'll know that you're talking about me. Where is my guest room? My guest room. It's it's somebody else's house. But he says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Like, how's the homeowner supposed to know all this? But he does know. He will know. When Peter and John come up to him, not only will he know, but he's going to have a, that large upper room furnished and ready. It's going to be large enough for 13 men. The table will be there. All the things needed will be there. And the owner of that home will have it ready for that exact moment. So really, there doesn't seem to be any indication to me that Jesus talked to the owner or a water pitcher man beforehand. It seems to me rather an indication of Jesus' knowledge of what's going to happen and his sovereign control even over all the details of this last night of his earthly life. And so verse 16 says, The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared. And not surprisingly, what Jesus said would happen turned out to be exactly what happened. And uh, it kind of harkens back to what the, the events of like less than a week before, right? In Mark chapter 11 on Palm Sunday, it's a good comparison, some parallels there, right? The events preceding his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, okay, with this preparations for the Last Supper. In both of them, Jesus commissioned two disciples. Hey, we're not going to go back to Mark 11. Let me just mention quickly. He commissioned two disciples. In both of them, Jesus had foreknowledge of what they would encounter, right? You're going to see a guy with a donkey and a colt and everything. In both, the response of those encountered by the two disciples is similar. They found it exactly as Jesus had told them. 
Okay? So we can see in both of those situations, everything was just like Jesus said it would be. And dear Faith Bible Church, isn't that always the case with our Lord, with his word, his promises, every promise of your word? Is he trustworthy and true always? Okay, all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ. And what a comfort, what an assurance that is for us. We're so feeble, we're so dependent, we're so prone to wander, we're still yet sinful, and yet God's word and God is so, so faithful to us. So, implication of this is that God's omniscience and sovereign control over the details of life and death, this is maybe even Jesus's, okay? God the Son's omniscience and sovereign control over all the details of life and death, and his life and his death, and the theological concept that I'm, I'm trying to bring forth here from uh, our, our, our big idea that we're extracting from this passage is that the Lord knows what and where and who of these needed preparations. He had orchestrated them somehow, not by talking with them, but just in his divine providence. That's, that's what was happening. And yet, and yet, the water pitcher man did choose to fill that pitcher up and carry it to the owner's house. And the owner did choose to be at home doing whatever on that day and to allow these two men, Peter and John, these strangers, to use one of his rooms to observe Passover when they told him, hey, teacher says he needs it. Peter and John themselves had the choice, right? They chose to obey Jesus. They trusted him. They believed his word. They believed what he said and they followed through. Okay, good job, Peter and John. So God is in sovereign control of all these details, these events, these happenings of life, yet man still makes choices which are his and her responsibility. Okay, good, bad, or neutral. And I'll just give you a silly example. Okay, I chose this morning to wear my favorite socks. Here stehe ich, ich kann nicht anders. They're from Shepherd's Conference. Right? That's, that's what it says on them. Right? It's Martin Luther. Here I stand, I can do no other. Right? I, I chose to wear these socks. And yet God was sovereign over even that detail, that I would be wearing these and even telling that silly thing to you uh, right now. Okay? Uh, there are bigger choices to make, okay, obviously, in life. And God calls us to trust in him and his son, believe and make choices according to your faith and your belief in Christ. And that's, that's for everyone, everyone today. So, those were the preparations for the supper. Our second last point is the predicament at the supper. That's your other blank in your outline there. The predicament at the supper. Uh, this is verses 17 to 21, and it begins by saying, verse 17, When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, I want to pause there. Okay, the preparations were all made, right? They did it, as Jesus said. Jesus and the twelve, the thirteen, they go, they're ready to eat, and it was evening time by then. Uh, as some of us are aware, in Jesus' time, they didn't eat seated upright at a table like we do nowadays. They reclined at a low table um, with 
cushions for them to lean on as they ate. Okay, this might seem awkward to us, but that was the custom, that was the way. You might have questions about digestion and things like that. But um, that's the way they did it. And um, uh, another footnote there. One of the most famous paintings um, by Leonardo da Vinci uh, of this very scene. Okay, it's called what? The Last Supper, right? Uh, it's not biblically accurate. Okay? Uh, Jesus and the Twelve were not seated at a table as depicted, but reclining on their left side most likely, and their right hand was freed up to take food off of that low table. And also, if you've ever seen the painting, um, there's light in the windows behind Jesus. And this is also incorrect because they would have eaten Passover in the evening after sunset. So I'm not saying this to be a critical or nitpicking of Da Vinci, an all-time master painter, artist, but just that we'd be careful not to get our theology from even the most beautiful of artwork or paintings. Um, rather, we should learn from the beautiful Word of God. Okay? And you know what? This kind of applies to like history, right? Don't get your history from Hollywood. Okay? Don't get your history from watching movies. Uh, they have they have agendas there. Okay. So anyway, uh, it goes on in verse 18, and Jesus says, "Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me." They begin to be grieved and say to him, one by one, surely not I. Matthew 26, verse 22, Matthew says they were deeply grieved, deeply grieved. And they began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And this included Judas. In John 13, by the way, this is after Jesus washes their feet as if he was a slave, a servant of them. It says in verse 21, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. And this was this was a problem. This was a predicament for them. And uh, by the way, Jesus knew who his betrayer was, right? He wasn't caught off guard at this. Uh, Not a predicament for him. Back to John 13, verse 10 and 11, it says, you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. But certainly to the twelve, this was startling, distressing, confusing for them. Like one of them, the twelve, is going to betray Jesus? Like hand him over? Deliver him over to the power of someone else? That's what the word meant, paradidomi in the Greek. It was a word that was often used to describe a criminal's being arrested or prisoners being delivered over to some punishment. It's a key word in, in Mark chapter 14. So all 12 of them are shocked, okay, incredulous. This is unexpected predicament at this last supper. One by one they ask, surely not I. And the way they ask it is expecting a negative answer. No, no way is it me. Right, Lord? Hey, they were so upset and shocked at this. They're talking about it through the rest of the meal. 
individually, they, they didn't see anything in them that, that could make it seem like it was them, and yet they were asking. So verse 20, he says to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. Jesus makes it clear, it's, it's one of you, one of you twelve. And he narrows it down by saying, one who dips with me in the bowl. Okay, John 13, 26, parallel passage again. Jesus says, it is one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to who? To Judas. Hey, apparently this indicates to us that Judas had to be seated very near to Jesus at that low table at this Last Supper. Hey, the point of Jesus' announcement was not to identify who the betrayer was. Okay? Um, he could have just said it, right? It's Judas, guys. Um, meals in those days were times of intimate fellowship, as sometimes it is today as well. That's why it's so good and important for families to have dinners together and meals together. But um, Jesus, uh, it says, was feeding the morsel, which was probably a piece of bread dipped in some kind of prepared sauce. And he, he got that morsel and fed it to Judas, okay, feeding it to him. Um, I think this was to show the 12 disciples and, and show us that this was someone who was close to Jesus, not just in physical proximity, but close to him. None of the 12 even expected any of them. And importantly, it emphasizes the incredible treachery of this betrayal. Sometimes we just, we, we hear Judas, we know, oh, bad guy, wicked, you know, bad. But this is like the most offensive, heinous, um, awful, horrific betrayal anyone could ever, ever do. Also, I believe that this was perhaps our loving Lord giving even this Judas a final opportunity to repent. Hey, this traitorous, treacherous man who's been acting like a true disciple of Jesus for three years. Hey, but secretly, it was only after self, right? Would give up, he would repent and give up the act and confess and truly trust in the Savior. But no, John 13, 27 and 28 says this. Listen, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. And he wasn't possessed by Satan before this. This is when Satan entered into him. And therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table, the rest of the disciples, none of them knew for what purpose Jesus had said this to him. And so that they were still in the dark. So I think um, there's a, one pastor gives a helpful illustration uh, of all this, and uh, he uses the illustration of the, the Porsche spider. Has anyone ever heard of a Porsche spider? It's not the car. It's P-O-R-T-I-A. But um, he says this, quote, This is a jumping spider that uses deception and mimicry to catch and eat other spiders. It uses camouflage or it shows a kind of behavioral mimicry. It imitates something its intended victim finds harmless or even attractive. As in, like it crawls on another spider's web and then plucks the web to imitate a captured insect. It even varies its web signals to suit its specific victim. If it encounters a new spider species, 
It tries different signals rather randomly. And it's been observed to perform vibratory behavior for three days until the victim decided to investigate. Patient spider. Well, here we have the bite of betrayal. In the ancient East, uh, the worst breach of friendship is for one to eat another's bread and secretly betray him. To eat bread is a token of loyalty, love, and devotion. He's saying his hand is on the table, quote-unquote, is a Aramaic colloquialism, which means he is eating my bread and yet he is plotting against me, end quote. That's kind of an idea of what's happening here at the Last Supper. Uh, you remember, probably, I mentioned last Sunday that the, the broad theme of Mark chapter 14 and even into chapter 15 is the abandonment of Jesus. And actually, everyone, okay, uh, the 12, not just Judas, but all of Jesus' followers, the crowds, the religious leaders, all will end up abandoning him, forsaking him. And it's his hour to go to be crucified on the cross. So I just want us to keep that in mind as we consider. This is Passion Week. We're at the night before the cross. So back to Mark 14 and back to Judas and back to our big idea. Hey, let's, let's rope it back in. God, who is in sovereign control over every detail of life and death, calls us, calls everyone to believe in his son and to make choices accordingly in our lives. Verse 21, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. He makes it clear that he, the Son of Man, that's the way Jesus refers to himself. It's a title of deity, right? He must go this way in betrayal just as it is written of him. Well, where is it written? And it's written in the Old Testament. And Psalm 22, Isaiah chapter 53, right? These messianic psalms, these messianic prophecies written hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. They speak of the suffering that the Messiah would undergo as he came to bear the sins of man and included being forsaken by, by friends and foes alike. But more specifically, the betrayal. It's happening just as God said it would. You might want to write this one down. Psalm 41, verse 9. Psalm 41, verse 9. It says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41, 9. Isn't God's word amazing? And this is King David writing okay, that psalm roughly a thousand years earlier. And he's referring to his close companion and counselor. Does anyone remember his name? Ahithophel. Ahithophel. Ahithophel and broke his neck. And that's what happened to him. But anyway, uh, this was David's friend who, who betrayed him. Ahithophel turned his back on David and kicked him while he was down. That's the, the scene there in Second Samuel. Well, Jesus is the greater David, the greater king, who references this psalm in John 13, verse 18. You need to write that one down as well. John 13, 18. This is what he tells the, the 12 in that upper room. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, 
but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He's referring to Psalm 41, verse 9, that this is talking about him in this very moment that we're in in Mark chapter 14 at the Last Supper. The Lord is explaining that his betrayal is part of God's divine purpose, according to the scriptures. And yet, can I say it again? The betrayer holds responsibility for his actions. He holds responsibility for his choice, his evil deed. Here's the way R.C. Sproul puts it. Quote, It is not as though God in his sovereignty coerced Judas to carry out the evil act of betraying Jesus. Rather, the sovereign God worked his will in and through the choices of his creatures. Judas did exactly what Judas wanted to do. But God brought good out of evil, redemption out of treachery. End quote. Are you tracking with me? Theologian Cranfield said, quote, The fact that God turns the wrath of man to his praise does not excuse the wrath of man. End quote. See, this was, this was all going according to plan. Whose plan was it? It was God's plan. It's Jesus' plan. And God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, they were in complete alignment, same, perfect, holy will. They were in control of the situation. And yet, at the same time, Judas had a choice. He had choices to make in each moment of his life, each day, each week, month by month, year by year, all three years with Jesus. And he ultimately landed on not trusting Christ as his Lord and King. All the choices he made throughout his life, even through those three close years of ministry with Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, it ended with the final choice to give in to his sinful rejection of who Jesus was and who he claimed to be, the Son of God and the only Savior of sin-sick souls. So what does the only one who has authority to say such things as Jesus does say. What does he say in verse 21? He says, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That woe, it's this emotive crying out, like, oh, how horrible, how horrible it's going to be for this man. It's the ultimate in misery, a utter despair. It's the worst kind of curse and punishment that this man faces. When Jesus says it would have been good for that man if he had not been born, listen, he's not comparing Judas's judgment to his non-existence before birth. Okay? He's not arguing for the superiority of non-being over being. Okay? Rather, it's a hyperbolic figure of speech he's using here conveying the severity of Judas's punishment that's going to come. As I've said, Jesus knew his hour had come. He knew his betrayer. He knew it was coming. But listen, it doesn't mean it didn't hurt. It doesn't mean Jesus didn't care or he was just resigned to these facts. He, he, he just responded robotically. 
No, in his humanity, this is part of his sufferings that he bore. The griefs that he carried, which surely caused him great sorrow and anguish. It even says it actually in Scripture. John 13, verse 21. I'm referring quite a bit to John 13 here, but verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit, in his soul. And he testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And that's the grief that he carried with him. And we know that deep distress will overcome him soon as the night progresses, as he leads Peter, James, and John to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray shortly before Judas comes with those Roman guards and betrays him with a kiss. And we're going to get to that in a couple Sundays. But once again, I want us to understand from our passage today those twin truths, these, these simultaneous concurrent truths we see throughout Scripture, which sometimes can be a predicament for us theologically. Predicament, right? That's the point. How to understand God's sovereign determination and the fact that Judas is, he had responsibility for his choice. Okay, I want to put it to you again in another way. James Edwards is so helpful here. Look, he says, Judas is not a victim of circumstances or a, or a pawn dominated by greater forces. He is a sovereign moral agent who freely chooses evil in handing Jesus over. We see the two essential truths of Jesus' passion. The freely chosen evil of humanity and the overarching providence of God. Divine grace uses even human evil for its saving purposes. End quote. Okay, I think we get it at this point. I hope we, we're understanding the point. Genesis 50:20. Joseph says pretty much the same thing as Romans 8:28 says in the New Testament. Right? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Right? God causes all things to work together for good. All things, even evil things, even horrific things, even the betrayal of one who was close to him. He uses for good. We see this over and over in the Bible. Human beings are held responsible for their beliefs, for their choices in life, and yet God is in sovereign control of everything in life and death. So the most important point is this. God is calling, inviting, warning, wooing those who do not yet believe in his Son to, to come and believe and trust. Hey, don't trust your good works or your good intentions or your good faith or your good to outweigh your bad. Hey, just repent and place your faith in Jesus. So to conclude, we started today with the preparations for the Passover supper, this last supper, which is the first Lord's table, which we'll see next week. Uh, but we saw the purpose behind all of it. And once again, it was to point to the only one who can rescue sinners from God's wrath to come. And uh, many years ago, J.I. Packer, who is most famously known as being the author of Knowing God, classic great book, um, someone asked him, Dr. Packer, could you summarize the New Testament in three words? He said yes, uh, surprisingly. But he said yes, and the three words he gave were this. Adoption through propitiation. 
I mentioned 1 John 4.10 before, right? And he explained, he says, We are forgiven and welcomed as children into God's family through the propitiation of Jesus Christ. So this is through the atoning work of Jesus, through his sacrifice, who is our Passover lamb. End quote. So once again, God so loved sinners such as us that he sent his son to be the Passover lamb who was slain for our sins. This was the lamb of God who brings true deliverance, true forgiveness, and true freedom out of our slavery, right? We don't belong to Pharaoh or anyone else, right? But freedom from slavery to our own sin, to self, and to Satan. And one final quote from the great Puritan Thomas Watson. Listen, Christ's blood is softening blood. There's nothing so hard but may be softened by this blood. It will soften a stone. Water will soften the earth, but it will not soften a stone. But Christ's blood mollifies a stone. It softens the heart of stone. It turns a flint into a spring. The heart, which before was like a piece hewn out of a rock, being steeped in Christ's blood, becomes soft, and the waters of repentance flow from it. End quote. I've experienced this as a an unbeliever many years ago, and I, I know that many here, our blessed Faith Bible Church brothers and sisters, have experienced this. And this is our desire that everyone would experience this life-changing, life-transforming, life-saving gift of faith. Jesus, this is the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. The invitation today is to put your faith in Him. He's the Lamb who is also the Lion. He's calling you to Himself to believe on Him who will one day bring judgment. And those of us who believe in Christ, we must continue, right, to submit ourselves to Him and to make choices in our lives that are according to his word. Okay, can we be faithful to do that, Faith Bible Church family? Amen. Let's pray. God, I praise you once again for the clarity of your word and in your love that you've given us the truth. And I pray, God, just even as I think of our dear brother Patrick who's with you, that we would be people who would rather be confronted with our sins and with the truth from your word and have our toes stepped on uh, rather than have our ears tickled and just hear what we want to hear. So thank you, God, for uh, bringing this uh, to us today in your wisdom and your timing. Once again, your great love for each of us. And I pray, God, that you would accomplish your purpose by, by your grace, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.